Hello, welcome back to the Casual Tuesdays Book Club. I've had to pull a little switch this week. Last week I said this episode was going to be about Louisa May Alcott's poem, Little Women, but after some further research I learned that the poem is actually an excerpt from the novel, Little Women, and I don't want to take it out of context. So instead, this episode we'll be, I'll be talking about Louisa May Alcott's poem, Our Little Ghost, which I've found online on poetryarchive.com or some other places as well. There's one typo in the version of, on Poetry Archive. It says Garth and it should say dark. All right, let's get started. All right, I wanted to start by looking at the first stanza, especially in comparison to some details later in the poem. The first stanza sets up a classic, eerie scene. This is done mostly through imagery that aligns with what we now know as classic horror tropes. The poem's a little bit older. But anyway, uh, you know, there's the night, it's whistling wind, an owl's cry, a flickering fire. And this is exactly how someone would set up a campfire ghost story. And because ghosts is in the title, as readers, we're kind of ready for this and we're expecting it. And then at the end of the stanza, stanza oof, this uh, spirit makes an entrance. But stanza two makes it clear that this ghost is just like a playful little kid. And I'll get more into that description later. But for now, it's suffice to say that the eeriness has kind of evaporated because the reader knows this is some Casper-friendly ghost type stuff. What I want to talk about is how the big dark... Uh, yeah... <laughs> It, well, it's just the big dark. Um, first of all, by putting big dark in quotes, Alcott is making the imposing darkness, which is set up in this first stanza, she's making it seem like this silly fan, uh, fallacy. And using punctuation like that, in that way, is just super, it's super concise, and it undermines the idea entirely, which is really funny. But then, stanza three, and then a little bit later as well, um, she illustrates this idea by retelling those details from the first stanza. So now the moon is fair and the winds are gay. And in stanza four, the ghost mimics the owl call like he's just a kid would mimic bird calls and stuff like that. So stanza one sets up classic creepy ghost story only for Alcott to take that apart. This is exactly, well, <laughs> not exactly, but this is very similar to writing a persuasive essay for school, where to most effectively refute the opposition, you have to talk about their ideas. Okay, I said I wanted to talk about the description of the ghost, and I'm going to do that right here. The descriptions are pretty straightforward in that they set up a child, and a happy one at that, and the ghost not only appears to be a happy child, but also behaves like one as well, you know, climbing around on pillows and having this fantasy about a kingdom and stuff like that. So... These descriptions of the ghost as a child come in both appearance and behavior, and they continue throughout the poem. Very, pretty much, it's kid stuff. And that's the point of this, that death hasn't changed the disposition of the spirit. Um, also, just for the record, uh, winsome means attractive or appealing in appearance or character. I looked it up. You know, I was actually thinking about doing a word of the week segment. Maybe this, yeah, you know, this is the first one. Fuck it. Uh, this, this week's word is winsome. It's an adjective, and it means attractive or appealing in appearance or character. There you go. Learn something new. Okay, back on track. The thing that really stuck out to me about these descriptions, the thing that I wanted to talk about the most, is that while the ghost, it's not about the fact that he's a kid, or it is a kid, um, but it's that it's contradictory. There are two descriptions of color. There's rosy cheeks and yellow curls in the second stanza, but the first stanza ends with, quote, a spirit all in white end quote. It's contradictory. And these descriptions come right after one another, which makes the contradiction so much more obvious. This detail contradiction comes in a poem that also has some other things that are kind of contradictory. So 
arguing that the darkness isn't scary. Now, this is argument's effective and I'll, you know, accept it and it's sensible, uh, but it's not, you know, I won't call it, it's not a full-on contradiction, but it goes against the logic and Alcott sets it up so that it is creepy at the start. It is scary at the start. So there's, you know, it, it goes against, it goes against the logic there. Similarly, stanza three, it says, quote, the solitude is full of friends, end quote. By the end, the ghost is curled up with the parents and they awake so that they could be with the ghost baby. So this seemingly contradictory statement is proven correct, but only by this, you know, fantastical ghost interaction occurrence. I would say if generally solitude is full of friends is not, you know, I mean, I like hanging out by myself, but it's, you know, it's kind of a contradictory statement. It's not... 100%, you know? Um, And then final stanza, the baby, the ghost baby is called the little rose without a thorn, which again, isn't quite a contradiction, but it's not quite reality either. That doesn't exist since the fall of Eden. I won't get into the biblical stuff there. Anyway, so what's the deal? Now, I actually have a bigger theory about this that has more pieces and I'll get to it at the end. But for now, it's safe to say that the presence of these contradictions gives the reader pause and it, you, as a reader, you kind of hang up on these contradictions and it cracks the fantasy. And I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, real quick, quick. Oh man, that was bad. Whatever. I'm plowing forward. Uh, I want to talk about the pronouns in this poem. First of all, the ghost is genderless. It's just referred to as it. I thought this was interesting because it lacks specificity. So the ghost baby could be anyone. Now in the poem, it's clear that the ghost is visiting its parents, so it's specific in that way. And there are some details about the rosy cheeks, the yellow curls, but the reader could make anyone the parents. And one of the ways I read this poem was that it was a way for parents to talk to a child about the death of a sibling. And with the ghost baby being just baby, and doing normal baby stuff, it shows that this lost sibling is still around, and without a gender, that ghost baby can be anyone. The second thing I wanted to talk about was what I think is more interesting was the use of we in the first stanza. Alcott uses our in the title, but that's different because our can be a narrator and someone else. That excludes the reader, but we is much more inclusive. Uh, With we, the narrator and the reader are on the same team, so to speak. Um, They're in cahoots, and the narrator is tr- is actively including the reader. And I think this setup kind of fits with this aforementioned general interpretation about the poem as a way to address the death of a sibling by having, you know, the parents, like a parent could read this poem to the, the living sibling and the we helps kind of cue in that everyone's in it together. Um, and yeah, I just thought the pronouns were pretty interesting. Got rambled there for a bit. All right. Despite all the happy descriptions and Alcott insisting that there's company in solitude, there are some definite melancholy aspects to this poem. First off, a child has died. Um, Alcott does her best to ease this by making the kid a happy little ghost who hasn't changed his disposition at all and allowing the ghost to interact with the parents and vice versa. But the fact kind of remains. Also, even with that arrangement, The first word of the poem is oft, meaning often, meaning not all the time. So it's not like a regular thing. Also, the ghost baby has fantasies about sunny fields and flowers and birds and butterflies, but can't get to those things. So, you know, 
none of that shit happens at night. So even though Alcott calls the you know calls them innocent and lovely, the fantasy set is, uh, and use it's I think using them to show that the ghost is still just like a regular kid has regular kid daydreams and stuff like that. It sucks because those fantasies are going to be forever unfulfilled. Finally, another element in the poem. I wasn't kind of sure where to put this in. Uh, it's not a full thing, but kind of a side goal of the poem um, is, you know, is telling kids not to be afraid of the dark. I, that's how I, early on before I finished the poem, I was like, oh, it's telling kids not to be afraid of the dark. Um, and even though I think it's more about the death of a sibling, it it serves it can serve for both. Um so don't worry about the big dark. And I was thinking about this, the big dark could, you know, could mean nighttime to a kid, but I think to an adult audience, that means death. And so there's a much more, and I guess he's saying, hey, like, chill out about death, but I don't think it's a lot more serious. There's a lot more gravity to the poem, um, and it's addressing a much more difficult thing um, than, you know, just being afraid of the dark it makes it seem like it would. All right. Now I'm going to tie stuff together, like I said it would before, in a more comprehensive reading of the poem. The first time I read it, as I said, I saw it as a way for parents to console children after the death of a sibling by giving the ghost baby life, making it kind of the same, and giving the parents interaction with the ghost baby. But there are these contradictions and these melancholy aspects. And so the way I see the poem is as a mostly functional, but not perfect, fantasy coping mechanism. The ghost isn't real. It's just something that they say to help cope. And they flush it out with detail to make it feel real. But there are contradictions in those details that show the limits of this fantasy. And there are these melancholy aspects that kind of slip in as well. So is this Alcott's intent? I'm not sure. It's hard. You can't read intent. But that's the way I see it. And I don't see it as an, an entirely melancholic you know, specifically coping mechanistic thing. I think I'm just kind of a cynical, pessimistic guy. But I can't ignore the contradiction in there. It seems like a fracture. And I think if you zoom out far enough, if you, and I can, I, the way I see it, I can imagine like parents, like I said, I can imagine like parents reading this to a child about after the death of a sibling, telling them to go to sleep and it'll be fine. And then I can see, they, so these parents read it and then they, you know, close the book of poems and then they go off to bed and they're just heartbroken. And so it has, and the idea of, I just don't believe in ghosts. So the idea that they're kind of retreating and using this as a coping mechanism and making this fantasy is the way that I read the poem. Um, and it makes it super, super sad. So sorry about that. All right, that does it for this week. Next week, oh, fuck yeah, I'm stoked for this one. It's Return to Tipasa by Nobel Laureate Albert Camus. Google that shit, it's online. Ooh, one of my all-time favorite pieces of writing ever. So much hot, hot fire. Anyway, oh man, I'm excited. So that'll be fun for next week. Anyway, the music this week was Holland 1945 by Nutramilk Hotel from the album In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. And I chose it because this song talks about death uh, of a loved one and its own sort of reincarnation in this surrealist fantasy and the whole album uses surrealism, dark surrealism and fantasy as a coping mechanism. It's a really great album lyrically and musically, you should just listen to it. Great live show too. Anyways, thanks for tuning in. Here's a little bit more Neutral Hotel. Hotel.